0: pray a most eternal and everlasting father king of kings and lord of lord thank you for the god that you are thank you for so being devoted to your children thank you for caring thank you that you are an awesome god compassionate patient with us we thank you Thank you that there's no one in heaven and earth like you. So we can approach you with confidence because we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who prays on our behalf, pleading because he had paid for our sins. So as we have gathered this evening, we realize that the human mind is incapable of focusing to absorb the truth. Apart from the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So it is a request that the Holy Spirit will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We're still dealing with, and we'll still be dealing for some time, the song of praise for God's deliverance in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. I begin reading at verse 10. It reads, but you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders. You stretch out your hand your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them. To your holy dwellings. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip. The people of Philistine. The chiefs of Eden. Will be terrified. The leaders of Moab. Will be seized. With trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm. There will be as steel as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your, your hands established. The law will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to, the, to them, saying to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hauled into the sea. Now I recall the second responsibility of the believer in the relation to the message of this passage that we have been considering is to ensure that in your praise you acknowledge Specific characteristic or characteristics of God relevant to his action for which you praise him as well as acknowledging his uniqueness now so far we have considered the manner of God's deliverance of Israel that, Israel, uh, that Moses stated in his song of praise that we have been considering for some time and the First manner of deliverance of Israel by God involves the destruction of the Egyptians. The second involves the display of His anger. The third is by strong wind that is portrayed in terms of the lost fierce anger. Now also we noted the four things Pharaoh, as the leader of his army, said or thought that he was confident that he and his army will achieve without considering that it is not up to him to achieve what he thought he would achieve. So the four things he stated imply that his desire was to thwart God's plan but but God foiled his plan as Moses described. It is with God's foiling them Of the plan of Pharaoh That will begin our study this evening Now to indicate That God Foiled uh, Pharaoh And his army's plan To capture the Israelites And return them into slavery Moses continued With the subject of God's power And the manner of his deliverance Of the Israelites For which he digressed To describe Pharaoh's plan that God thwarted Now this Continued focus on the power of God Is given in the first clause Of uh, Exodus 15 verse 10 Where it says But you blew with your breath Now the Hebrew Does not contain the conjunction but That appears in the NIV And uh, in many of our English versions Nonetheless such an addition is intended, probably, to convey to the English reader that what follow in uh, verse 10 is a demonstration of God's power that is in, uh, contrasted to the power of Pharaoh who could not even carry out his plan. See, a plan is not much of any good if we could not implement it. Now Pharaoh beat more than he can chew by planning to stop God's plan from progressing. In other words, it was God's plan for the Israelites to return to Canaan in keeping with his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 verses starting of, uh, through 14. We'll keep going back to that passage several times because that is very important In the Exodus. So we keep going back to it uh, many, many times as the occasion arises. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. It reads Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved. I mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation that serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So God restated this promise to Moses when he commissioned him to be the agent of his deliverance of Israel from Egypt, as we read in Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Exodus, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have washed over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery. In Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Terizites, Hivites, and Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. So there was no way that God's plan would not be fulfilled. That's his plan that's been revealed to Moses as well. Thus, Moses focused on God's power by continuing to describe the manner by which the Lord delivered Israel while he destroyed the Egyptian army that was in hot pursuit of the Israelites. Now the manner of deliverance of Israel that involved the display of God's power is through the wind that the Lord brought about describing terms of his grace, as we read in that sentence of Exodus 15 verse 10, when it, when it, where it reads, You blew with your bread. You blew with your bread. Now this sentence is a repeat of what Moses said in verse 8. Now, I know sometimes some of us get tired of repeating. But that's the way you learn anything, really. You have to be repeated over and over. And so, because it is a repeat of... What he said in verse 8. I'm going to repeat what I said also in verse 8. Thus, though, Moses continue to emphasize God's power and control of all creation. Now that aside, the word blue is translated from a Hebrew word that appears only twice in the Hebrew text. The word although literally means to blow, is concerned with the with causing wind as that is the same that the word is used in its other occurrence in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 24 you see the Hebrew word translated uh, blue it occurs only twice in the Hebrew uh, text and here is order used in Isaiah 40, verse 24. It reads, No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they uh, sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, then he blows on them, and they wither, And a warm wind sweeps them away, uh, away like chaff. Now in Exodus 15, verse 10, Although the Hebrew word conveys a sense of Exhaling of breath But it is usually used figuratively For causing wind to blow Now the reason we say this Is because of that word breath Is translated from a Hebrew word That we have considered previously So because it is from verse 8 So let me review What we said about that word The word breath It's translated from a Hebrew word, ruach, ruach, that with a basic meaning of blowing, or air in motion, or wind. Now consequently, the word, of course, has a range of meanings. The word may mean breath of the mouth, or nostrils, as in the description of humanity that was destroyed in the flood judgment, according to Genesis chapter six, verse seventeen. Genesis chapter six, verse seventeen. It is I'm going to bring flood. Waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens Every creature that has the breath That's what breath is, Ruach Breath of life in it Everything on the earth will perish Now the word may mean wind, may mean wind as, that, as it means the Lord used to bring the plague uh, Judgment on the Egyptians That has to do with locusts As we read in Exodus chapter 10, verse 13. Exodus. Chapter 10, verse 13 reads, Exodus 10, verse 13 reads, So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt. And the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day, all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locust. Wind here is a Hebrew word ruach. Now, the word figuratively though may refer to various emotions that people may have. So, it could mean feeling. Just make feeling as it is used to describe the feeling of jealousy of a husband that suspects the wife was being unfaithful in numbers chapter five, verse 14. Numbers chapter five, verse 14. It is, and a feeling of jealousy come upon her husband, and he suspects his wife, and she is impure, or if he jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure. See that phrase, feeling of jealousy, if we translate the Hebrew word ruach with one of the other meaning, we mean Spirit of jealousy. Spirit of jealousy. It's the same word that means spirit. So here we can translate spirit of jealousy. Thus the word may mean then spirit, as it is of course used to describe God's spirit, as the one that transforms Saul and caused him to prophesy, as by the words recorded in 1 Samuel chapter ten, verse six. 1st Samuel chapter 10 verse 6 reads then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you now that was spirit is the same word ruach. the spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power that's really the Holy Spirit and you will prophesy with them and you'll be changed into a different person so the word may mean blast blast as it is used to describe God's anger in Job chapter 4 verse 9 Job chapter 4 verse 9 which is all I'm doing is reviewing exactly what I gave you in verse 8 Job chapter 4 verse 9 reads at the breath of God they are destroyed at the blast of his, of his anger they perish so in our passage of Exodus fifteen ten, uh, the Hebrew word is used in a literal sense of breath But it is to be understood in the sense of God causing wind to blow. Now God is not a human as they exhale air as we do. But to say then that God blew with your breath, describing God, is really a figure of speech. That is known again as anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism that is describing God as having human forms and performing human actions. Again, the intent of the sentence, you blew with your breath, is to indicate that God acted using wind to accomplish his deliverance of the Israelites. God uses wind for his purpose. Every time he uses wind for his purpose. Now the psalmist stated this in Psalm one hundred four verse four. Psalm one hundred four Verse Four Psalm one o four verse 4 it is he makes winds his messengers flames of fire his servants in other words many times uh, wind we think it will go this way it goes the other way it's just what God wants to do with it Including fire. I mean, when we see all these fires, we say, oh, just, you know, it's burning out of control, whatever. God is still using them for his purpose. Our task is always to find out what that purpose is. Now, wind, being God's messenger, implies that he uses it to accomplish his purpose. That is also what the psalmist stated, still in Psalm, look at 148, Verse 8. Now that is again uh, to tell us that all these elements that we see taking place they are all doing what God wants done. He has a purpose. And he controls every one of them. No matter how it goes and where it touches He's controlling all of them. So here it says lightning and hail snow and clouds stormy winds that do look at that he is bidding. That is what God wants. All these do what he wants. No matter sometimes, as I say, maybe catastrophic to some and not to others. Either way, they are all doing what he wants done. So anyway, recall that it is in wind that the Lord used to bring the plague of Logos in Egypt, as we already mentioned in of Exodus ten verse thirteen. Now by reversing the direction of wind, the Lord removed the locusts from Egypt according to Exodus chapter ten verse nineteen. Again that's with emphasizing the fact that God uses wind to do what he wants. So to bring judgment he brings, he uses wind. To end it, he uses wind. So he can do whatever he wants to do with the elements of our weather. Now, I mean, people predict this and predict that. It doesn't matter. The point remains that they will do exactly what God wants to There's nothing we can do about it. We can stop it. I don't care what people try to say. If we did it, no, no one can stop it. Only God can do it. So here he reads, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. The Lord used the wind to make the paths of dry ground from the Red Sea, so for Israelites to cross over. From Egypt's side of the Red Sea to the side that leads to Canaan, according to Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Exodus 14, verse 21. reads then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and I and mean, turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. So using wind was also how the Lord supplied quail to the Israelites after they longed to eat meat as we read in Numbers, chapter 11, verse 31. Numbers, chapter 11, verse 31. Numbers chapter 11 verse 31 reads Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. He brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground to find more than that so they can kill them. As far as a day's walk in any direction. So the issue is Here God is providing them well. What did he use? Wind. So that would say wind he uses for his purpose to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. So as we stated then, the wind was used to divide the Red Sea so Israel could pass through on a dry land. Now in the original narrative though of the event of Israel crossing the Red Sea on the ground, I mean on a dry ground, it was not clearly stated that the wind was used To bring about the reversing of the flow of the Red Sea to its original position. So we are simply informed that Moses stretched out his hands over the sea. For that effect to have occurred. As in Exodus chapter 14 verses 26 through 28. Now we know that the Lord used wind to divide it but when they were reversing it it wasn't really stated but that's uh, clearly what happened because here we read in verse 26 of Exodus 14 Then the Lord said to Moses Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, break, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians, you see, he didn't tell us how. He just said he went back. But later on, we find out that it's the same wind that was reversed. So the Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them, Survive. So the situation involved in returning the waters of the Red Sea to its original position is that when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, that the Lord used the wind to return the water to its original position, similar to the use of the wind to remove the locusts uh, from Egypt during the plague of locusts. Now, this understanding then, uh, as we indicated, uh, this, this sentence is really a way, uh, when you see what it look at verse 10, uh, 15, verse 10, we're starting, it say, You blew with your breath. So, when we're saying that, yes, he used water to return, I mean, wind to return back the water, that's really what we have here. You blew with your breath. Now as we indicated this sentence then is a way simply to convey that God sent wind to accomplish his purpose of returning the water of Sea to its original level prior to Israel's crossing of faith. So here we're seeing God's power Moses is singing song of praise so he's not talking about how he did it by using the wind. So we know Again, that God uses wind whenever he wants certain things done. Now be that as he may, then the wind that the Lord sent was a manner of deliverance of the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians and the means of the destruction of the Egyptian army. It is this destruction then of the Egyptian army that is stated in the next clause of Exodus 15 verse 10 that we are studying. Next clause of verse 10 of Exodus 15 reads, And the sea covered them. And the sea covered them. Now, the word covered is translated from a Hebrew word with several meanings. For example, the word may mean to hide, to hide, as the psalmist used it to indicate that uh, he did not keep secrets. To himself the Lost righteousness. That is, of course, God's way or God's will, but made it known to the assembly of believers in Israel. He did not keep it to himself. In other words, as some people say, I keep my faith to myself. That's not the biblical sound. You cannot keep your faith to yourself. If you can't talk about it, then you probably Having a problem with it. You can't keep it to yourself. You have to tell other people. That's part of our responsibility. So the psalmist say, I don't keep it. And that's what is really is implied in Psalm 40, verse 10. Psalm 40, verse 10. And hold on to Psalm. I'm still going to get another passage in Psalm. Psalm chapter 40 verse 10 reads, I do not hide uh, hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. In other words, there's so much God does for us. We should tell people about it. Don't give it to yourself. That's one of the things that God wants from us. Talk. Tell people about what he's doing for you. That's the food we offer him, so to say. So that's what it says. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Now in our passage of Exodus 15 verse 10, the Hebrew word means to cover, or simply to cover over. Now so if water in the sea covers over the Egyptians, that means, of course, that they were drowned in the sea. Now the Lord, by using the wind to return the waters of the Red Sea to its original level, before he made it dry, uh, Or made a dry path for the Israelites to cross. Which, as far as we can tell, he did it in such a way that uh, there was the possibility that some of the Egyptians could swim. So by using that wind, making it so forceful, they were not able to swim to escape. That's part of it all I'm saying is it is possible that there were those among the Egyptian army that could uh, swim to escape but the force the wind which God uh, sent was such that there was no way made it impossible for any of them even if they were good swimmers they couldn't swim so that is how God handles his plan if he just okay bring it back In this room, And some may struggle to get out, and God said, "No, not one of you is going to survive." So use a strong wind, make it in such a way that the best swimmer couldn't make it. that's part of that power God shows. That's what Moses is celebrating as he sings and praises God for what He has done for them. Now that all, of course, all the Egyptians that were in pursuit. Of the Israelite round. When God returned. The waters of the Red Sea. To its original level. Is further stated. In the last clause of Exodus 15 verse 10. Look at the last clause. It it reads. They sank. Like lead. In the mighty waters. Now this sentence. Serves at least two purposes. It indicates the Egyptians drown quickly because of the use of the word lead, lead. In describing the destruction of the Egyptians by the waters of the Red Sea. Lead, being several times denser or heavier than water, easily sinks in the water. So the sentence... By mentioning lead here He just tells us Yeah God made it in such a way Every one of them went down quickly Now the sentence also Attests further That the Lord used wind In destroying the Egyptians So that the water exerted such a force When it returned So this observation Is derived from the phrase The mighty waters Because it says, They sank like lead in the mighty waters Waters. Now, the adjective mighty is translated from a Hebrew adjective that may mean majestic. Majestic in describing God, as we read in Psalms chapter 8, verse 9. Psalms Psalms chapter 8, verse 9. It is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now in our passage of Exodus 15, verse 10, the Hebrew word means mighty in the sense of Uh, Having or showing a great strength A great force or intensity Now the force or the intensity Of the waters of the Red Sea As the waters return to their level Before the Lord divided the Red Sea Accounts for the waters To be described with the uh, Adjective mighty, mighty So the point is that the manner of the deliverance of Israel From the hands of the Egyptians Involved the use of the wind To drive back the waters of the Red Sea To its original level Before the Lord used the wind of course To divide the, uh, the sea Creating a dry path for Israel to cross Now so this action then That he brought about By bringing back the wind in a different direction Resulted in the drowning of all the Egyptians that pursued the Israelites. That was the purpose of using the wind in this case to ensure that every one of them perished. The second responsibility that you have as a believer regarding God's deliverance or goodness to you as we've stated is again to ensure that in your praise you acknowledge specific characteristic or characteristics of God relevant to his action for which you praise him, as well as acknowledge his uniqueness. So we have been dealing with the characteristic of God that Moses was acknowledging. Of course, the manner in which God did what he did, which is deliverance, they knew that for sure, so he can talk about it. And sometimes, like I I said in the past, we may not know the manner by which he actually did that. But we can uh, see something about his character that's displayed in whatever he did. So we can talk about that, we can praise him for that, but we may not say much about the manner in which he did it. Anyway, so this second responsibility that we stated uh, implies that your praise or oh, that your praise of God for his goodness should at least focus on the three elements found in the song of praise of the passage that we are studying. The first content of your praise again should be the characteristic or, character, or characteristics of God that pertain to His specific goodness to you. The second content is his action and the manner in which he carried it out, if that is known to you. So we proceed to consider the third element then, or the content of your praise for his goodness towards you, manifested in form, in form of some form of deliverance that you experience. So this third element, or content of your praise, For God's goodness should be an acknowledgement of his uniqueness. You have to acknowledge the uniqueness of God. That is the third thing. Now the first thing a believer should acknowledge though in his praise of God is really in this particular uh, part is that he remains unique and incomparable to all the divine beings that exist in heaven or on earth. You have to keep acknowledging that, that he is unique in heaven and on earth. It is this uniqueness of the God of Israel in terms of his incomparability to any divine being that Moses acknowledged in the first rhetorical question of Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 that we're starting. Look at the first rhetorical question of Moses. It is Who among the gods is like you O oh Lord? That's, it's not, it's not a question for God to answer. That's rhetorical. In other words, he's saying, God, no one is like you among the gods. Now, the word gods here is written really not from the Hebrew word Elohim. Most of you know because that word Elohim can mean the supreme God who is the creator of all gods. But the word here, uh, gods, is translated from the plural of a Hebrew word, El. There's the best way to write it uh, without um, the other things in the Hebrew that we really can uh, We use comma, uh, inverted comma to represent, uh, but just L, E-L. That's the best way to uh, write the Hebrew word that is used here. And the word is generally a Semitic appellative for deity. Now authorities, the authorities, uh, uh, some like uh, the theological dictionary of the Old Testament, for example, and in volume 1 of it, uh, pages 242 through 253, when you look through that, go through it, it tells us that the, in the ancient Near East, El, El, that word El, is the primordial father of gods and men. In other words, uh, they describe that as El is the t- top god, related to sin. And so sometimes El is described as being very stern. That's among these, the Middle uh, Near Eastern people. Sometimes they say he is compassionate, but they say he's always wise in judgment. Now according to the myth uh, of that time, El is the father of the family of God and their ruler. He is also described as their creator. They see him as the ancient one who because of his extraordinary procreative power have populated heaven and earth. This L, that's how these people thought about him. That he is all all of all the gods. So he is also believed to live in a tent on the mount of assembly in the far north. That is the place of what they call cosmic decisions. Now in the Old Testament scripture, The word is used to describe idols That some Israelites made as objects of worship Although prophet Isaiah denounced those involved And charged them of not thinking clearly Or charged them of of being devoid of reason Since it is the same wood That they use for burning and cooking That they use to construct what they worship As we read in Isaiah 44 verse 15. Now that's one of those things. See, when you get involved in idolatry, you don't think clearly. That's just the problem with being involved in idolatry. You don't think clearly. Because if you're able to think clearly, you see, oh, I'm getting involved in something that doesn't really make sense. So when people get involved in idolatry, they lose really the capacity to reason. They may be very sharp or intelligent, but they lose that capacity. That's just the nature of the deception. And that's what prophet Isaiah chides the Israelites in Isaiah 44, verse 15. He reads, it is, it is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and wants, and wants himself. He kindles a fire and begs bread. But he also fashions a God and worships it. He makes an idol and blows down to it. I mean bows down to it. So when people lose reasoning, see how can a person make something and worship it? You worship something greater than you are. But you create it and worship it, that means lost all sense of reason. Anyway, our Hebrew word is used really. To describe heavenly beings The word El Is used for describing heavenly beings Thus our Hebrew word El Is used to describe Heavenly beings That were urged to praise God In Psalm 29 Verse 1 Psalms 29 Verse 1 and hold on to Psalms. Psalms 29, verse 1. It is Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now that phrase. Mighty Ones, Mighty Ones, is literally from the Hebrew, Sons of God. That's what read Sons of God. So that's what the Hebrew says. Bene Ele, Bene Ele, Sons of God. Now the same phrase really is translated, Heavenly Beings, in Psalm 89, verse 6. Psalms 89 verse 6 It is For who In the skies above Can compare With the Lord Who is like the Lord Among the heavenly beings Now some of our English versions Use the word mighty To translate the plural form of our Hebrew word in a passage that indicates that the gods are afraid of the supreme god of creation according to Job chapter 41 verse 25 Job 41 verse 25 Job chapter 41 verse 25 Job chapter 4 to 1 verse 25 reads, When he rises up, the mighty, he that refers to the supreme creator, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. Although, I mean, here it's a figure of speech used with Levantine and all that, but uh, it's really eventually referring to God in the end. So the phrase, see that phrase, the mighty, the mighty, is literally gods, gods, as reflected in the New Revised Standard Version, although the New Jewish verse, Version, the Tanaka, uses the meaning divine beings. Hence, our Hebrew word though, is used to describe a transcendent being, so means something like divine one or God with small uh, lowercase g, or God with capital G. So these usages, or many notwithstanding, our Hebrew word is used primarily in the Old Testament scripture as a generic name for God the Creator that focuses on His might and power. They can be used to describe these gods, but The primary uh, primary usage is for the creator. Now the word was used to describe the God Abraham worshipped. Although with the adjective almighty added in Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. Hold on to Genesis. We'll pick up several, two more passages in Genesis. Genesis uh, 17, verse 1 reads When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So, El, but now added the word Almighty. Now, likewise, it is a word that Isaac used to describe God when he instructed Jacob to go to Pardon Aram to obtain a wife, as we read in Genesis twenty eight verse three. Genesis chapter twenty eight verse three. He reads May God Almighty, that's L, we use with the word Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. Now it is the same word used to describe the God that appeared uh, to Jacob to ensure that he was he returned to Canaan after about 20 years stay in Padan Aram as we read in Genesis chapter 31 verse 13. Genesis chapter 31, verse 13. It reads, I am the El of Bethel. In other words, I am the God of Bethel. And again, the word there, God here is El. Where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once. Go back to your native land Now thus we are certain That our Hebrew word El is used to describe the God of Israel As the object Of their worship Who is Of course a supernatural being That originated And rules Over the universe Now in our passage of Exodus 15 verse 11 The Hebrew word is used to refer to Created Heavenly beings that sur- uh, surround and worship the supreme God of creation. In other words, the, although the word El can be used just as Elohim can be used for the uh, supreme God, the word El can be used for the lower God, so to say. So these heavenly beings called gods are real as the Holy Spirit asserted, and we have studied that in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 5. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 8. Verse 5. We are saying that. You know these. Heavenly beings called gods. They are real. So we read. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 5 says. For even if there are so called God's. Whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So the the gods is a description of heavenly beings that include angels, as we studied, authorities and powers that Apostle Peter described in First Peter chapter three verse twenty-two. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 22. So it says, first Peter three twenty-two, referring to Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with the angels, authorities, these are not the human authorities, these are those spiritual beings, the gods. Uh, it says authorities and powers in submission to Him. That means all these these beings created that we call gods, they bow down to Christ because He's God, the Creator. Now some is describe these gods though as part of the heavenly court, as we started in, when we looked at this passage of First Corinthians eight five, but uh, we looked at the passage in Psalm eighty two. Let's look at it again. Psalm 82, particularly verse 6. Let's begin with verse 6. Psalm 82. Verse 6. Psalm 82, verse 6 reads I said, You are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, those addressed as gods are not humans. Some argue that they are humans, but look at verse 7. Verse 7 says But you will die like men. You will fall Like every other ruler Now if those Described as gods were humans It would not make sense To say that they will die like humans So the point Is that there are heavenly beings That are described with the word gods They are created beings That worship God It is because they are real and some of them, they fallen among them, no doubt, crave to be worshipped. That God certainly uh, forbade Israel from worshiping any being other than Himself, according to Exodus 20, verse 5. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 5, it says, You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So it is because some of the created supernatural beings crave worship by humans that one of the temptations of Satan... Towards Jesus is that of worshiping Him, because well, He craves to be worshipped. So anyway, these gods are real divine beings created by the supreme God. Does Moses, under the directive of the Holy Spirit, recognize their existence? Since he used the phrase in passage we're studying First Corinthians, I mean uh, Exodus 15:11, he said, "Among the gods, among the gods." Because he said who is like you among the gods Now the word among suggests that Moses Was speaking of living beings Or spiritual beings For he could not be comparing God With non-living beings Such as idols or images That the pagan people worship Now to convey then that Moses in his praise Acknowledged the uniqueness Of God he used The word Lord in his rhetorical question of Exodus 15, 11, When it says Who among the gods is like you, O Lord Now again that word Lord Is translated from a Hebrew word That we normally translate as Yahweh As the name that God gave to Israel Through Moses for identifying him Thus, Moses not only acknowledged The uniqueness of God Among the divine beings But acknowledge that he is in a special relationship with Israel, As has been demonstrated by his deliverance of them from the hands of the Egyptians So the implication is that when you praise God You should acknowledge that he is the supreme God That is in a personal relationship with you through the death of his son Jesus Christ think about it the supreme being the one the creator of the lower gods and uh, all other creation yet as mighty as he is he is in a personal relationship with you that's something you should think about that the God of the universe is in a personal relationship with you and so that's what Moses acknowledged so you should acknowledge that as you think about God, as you praise Him for whatever He has done for you. Think about and thank Him a lot that uh, He has seen fit to be in that personal relationship with you. So when you pray, when you praise Him, you need to always acknowledge that He is the unique and the supreme creator of the universe and the deliverer of His people. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us to keep remembering how unique you are so that when we praise you, we know that we have this great privilege of being in personal relationship with you. So we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will continue to sing this truth in our soul so that we'll be those who actually praise you for what you do for us. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.